This is the second in a six-part series by Terry Virgo on the Book of Philippians. The talks were first given to a gathering of senior international leaders from the New Frontiers family, and Terry has based them on Paul's apostolic relationship with the church in Philippi. The accompanying notes provide an outline to the series and also provide a number of quotations from helpful commentators. So we move on in the letter, which um, Paul, you remember, I wanted to bring out particularly yesterday, is that a letter from an apostle to a church in partnership with him in his apostolic journeys, and to try and bring out the simplicity of the fact that it is a letter, so he is um, not writing, as it were, a theological treatise, although we come to some incredible stuff as we go through it. But he's now saying, look, this is... Um, Here's my news. That's how he's starting in this. He's, uh, we went through the introduction yesterday. We went through his initial prayer, saying, these are my ambitions for you. This is what I'm constantly praying for you. And now he's saying, look, I'm just going to update you. It's just like we might write a letter. Uh, these are the things that have been happening to me lately. Some of my, my circumstances, uh, the way it's, it's all worked out. And uh, so he says, so uh, I want you to know, brothers, verse 12. Um, interesting. As we saw at the beginning, he calls them holy ones. Uh, now he's calling them brothers. Uh, one, if you like, showing them respect. The other, showing his affection. Uh, he's not taking a stance, as it were, above them. They're his brothers. He fellowships with them as brothers. And he's updating them about his present circumstances, the way things have turned out for him. And although the verses are full of I and me, uh, because they are about his news, it's interesting that there's so little detail about his actual life. How many mosquitoes are in the uh, in the jail? You know how the chains kind of chaff against him, and how it's hard to sleep at night. And uh, these soldiers do snore a lot, and uh, I'm finding it hard to sleep. You know, there's nothing really about him. It's I and me, but it's not about him. And uh, it's a fascinating thing that. He, is, he's, he has got a preoccupation, as we're going to see. His preoccupation is the advance of the gospel. He's uh, absolutely focused. He's after one thing, and that is glorifying Jesus. And so he begins to say, my circumstances have turned up for the greater progress of the gospel. And that's his one joy, his one delight. That's where he's focused. Everything else is secondary. Everything else just takes its place, knowing that the uh, gospel's advance... It's the great thing in his life. And so he makes nothing, if you like, of all that he went through. And the Matea quote here, the deceit, malpractice, vilification that surrounded him were beyond belief. Yet he looks back and asserts what happened to him had really served to advance the gospel. And if you think of what happened to him, it, it starts back in Acts 21, where he is arrested on a trumped-up charge in Jerusalem. You remember, he's there with Timothy, and suddenly the gang turn against him, the Judaizers and the Jewish people turn against him. He's thrown into prison. And you read about it in chapter 21, 22, 23, 24. He's taken up to Caesarea. And uh, there uh, he's left in prison. And that always strikes me, the end of that chapter, when it just says in a verse, and so they left him there for two years. And you think, what? I remember the first time I noticed that. It's just a little verse. So they left him there for two years. You left him? there for two years and two years I thought going to Bible college was bad enough for three years but just left in a prison for two years 
and just left. And uh, you think, well, what on earth is going on? And then, of course, the shipwreck, or at least the, uh, the, the trip and the, which landed in shipwreck, and the whole thing, false accusation, nearly lynched by a mob, insult, shame, trial, shipwreck, and he arrived in Rome, not as an honored apostle. You know, he wrote to the Romans earlier. He said, I want to come to you. I don't suppose he thought, I'll come as a prisoner in chains via a shipwreck. He wanted to get to Rome. Uh, God got him to Rome, but not the way he would have anticipated. Uh, and so there he says, no, it's the advance of the gospel. And so as Gordon Fee says, to advance the gospel has been his lifelong passion. And uh, we need to really associate and identify with that. There's really not a note of self-pity. He refuses self-pity. And uh, he just describes the effects of his chains, uh, not on himself, but on others. And uh, the NIV leaves the word chains, which actually, I, I feel it's more uh, illustrative. It's effective that the NASB translate imprisonment. But chains reminds you of what we're talking about here. And uh, I think it's really more powerful. It's in verse 13, 14, 17, the word chains. It's just a little insight. My chains, my chains. He really is in a serious situation, but he does not get diverted from his goal. And some of us, I, I can't get away from the serious note that Simon struck on that first session about what lies ahead. And I think of all that Pete and Hattie have been through in these last few weeks and months, just their lives just in, you know, thrown about. And yet how they've kept their focus clear. And uh, having had a working lunch with them since we've been here, I mean, their focus, it's like, oh, yeah, we'll work out the house. We'll work out where we live. The focus is the gospel, the advance of the gospel. And I just want to say, thank God that that spirit is not foreign to us. And some of us are living that out, maybe tougher than any others, but it's there. And it was here in Paul, the focus is the gospel. And so here, it's interesting again, I love Matthias' quote, he did not see his suffering as an act of divine forgetfulness. Why did God let this happen to me? Nor a dismissal from service. I was looking forward to years of usefulness. Now look at me. Nor as the work of Satan. I'm afraid the devil's had his way this time. No, but as the place of duty, the setting for service, the task appointed. It's magnificent. The guy is so positive, he's so clear, he knows exactly what's on his heart. The experiences he's gone through are horrendous. His focus could not be clearer. And he did not use the occasion of suffering either to turn his thoughts in upon himself or to make himself the object of other people's attention and interest. These verses, 13 and 14, with their common foundation of the words my chains or my imprisonment are as outward looking as any pair of verses in the New Testament. It's a great statement. He's thinking about the advance of the gospel, the preaching that's going on associated with my imprisonment. And he talks about two sets, the unbelievers, first of all, the praetorian guard, uh, and everyone else knows I'm in chains because of my relationship with Christ. Now, they would be the emperor's, probably the emperor's own elite troops, special guard. And uh, it's, uh, as you look up the, the commentaries, that they would probably have been on four-hour shifts and uh, would have been exposed to Paul pretty close up, uh, day after day after day. And so these guys have been pretty close to the apostle Paul. Uh, Gordon Fee says, 
Let him loose and he'll turn the world upside down. Incarcerate him and he'll turn Caesar's household upside down. <laughs> That's a great point. And uh, you notice, of course, if you just think about it, it says in chapter 4, 22, virtually the last verse of the whole letter, and he says, all saints, especially those of Caesar's household, greet you. That's got a lovely twist in it, hasn't it? And uh, <laughs> the fee quote I just mentioned isn't in your notes, but sorry if I saw one or two of you looking for it. But it's, uh, he says, yeah, those in Caesar's household, you think, yeah, you chain him up, there's going to be some guys here saved pretty soon. And that is such a challenge to us, isn't it? That we're not just platform people. Uh, you know, is the platform nicely arranged? Uh, who's going to lead up to my word? Has someone got a car to get me away from here? You know, we can drift into professionalism if we're not careful. And, uh, you know, sometimes you meet this place, they say, they're amazed that we, sometimes in the, in the States, guys will say to me, oh, you come into the worship. Uh, we thought you just came in to preach. And that happens often. Preachers come in, they arrive as the worship's concluding, they preach, and then they're gone. And it's a job. And you think with the Apostle Paul, this could not be further removed. You, blo you lock him up, well, these guys are going to hear it then. And there's no sense of, I'm a professional, and this is unhampered for a season, I'm shut in. No, we're going we're gonna to evangelize Caesar's household. What a great opportunity. And I, I'm, I'm personally so provoked uh, by that attitude. And uh, so here he is. He, he's getting on with his gospel work uh, in the limitations of the cell. And then also, verse 14, uh, the brothers have become more confident in the Lord to speak. They'd, they'd taken courage. Paul's pioneering. Paul's showing such a good attitude in spite of his limitations. He's bright. He's up. He's preaching. And that's stimulated the guys around to, yeah, let's go for it. If Paul can go for it, we'll go for it. And it had a good knock-on effect uh, to those who were with him in good attitude. They were stimulated by his example. And then in verse 15, and one can only assume that Paul would have reports as people maybe visited him, came in to see him, and had time with him. Some were preaching Christ even from envy and rivalry. And yet still Paul sees the advance of the gospel as primary. That's his big focus. And everything else has to line up with that focus in his thinking. And those words envy and rivalry are not casual words. You'll find those two words in some of the most serious lists of sins. In Romans 1, where Paul is describing the foulness of the human race, you'll find those two words uh, in there. In Galatians 5, the works of the flesh. Uh, there's this ugly list of human sin. And then in Timothy, where Paul is talking about people who are divisive, who've lost the way. Again, you'll see a list. And those two words are in those kind of lists. These are serious problems. These people are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry. But you see something of the magnitude of the man that even then he, he can soar above it. Somehow, he is, not, he is not caught up in it. It doesn't get to his soul. He's above it. Now, he can make statements elsewhere when he's teaching about the human condition in Romans 1 or contrasting the spirit and the flesh in Galatians 5 and so on. He knows. He can set it out. But given his context, he can rise above it and not let it get to him in prison 
in the limitations he's presently experiencing. It's not going to sour his soul. And I think that's something for us in apostolic ministry to learn and to get hold of. Paul can write like this, and I love what Fee's put here. Three things. It's a big quote. I'm sorry, but it's so worthwhile that I just uh, want to bring these quotes to you of Gordon Fee's. Paul can write things like this because first, first, his theology is in good order. It's great that. It's not just that, well, he's got a generous kind of heart. You know, Paul's like that. He's kind of broad-minded or he doesn't care much. No, no. His theology is in good order. He has learned, by the grace of God, to see everything from the divine perspective. This is not wishfulness, but deep conviction that God had worked out his own divine intentions through the death and resurrection of Christ. And that by his Spirit, he is carrying them out in the world through the church. Therefore, through both himself and others, it is not that Paul is too heavenly-minded to be in touch with reality, or that he sees things through rosy-tinted glasses. Rather, he sees everything in the light of the bigger picture. And in that bigger picture, fully emblazoned on the screen at Calvary, there is nothing that does not fit, even if it means suffering and death on the way to resurrection. Such theology dominates this letter in every part. We should not be surprised that it surfaces at the outset even in this brief narrative. The call then to see everything in the light of the cost of salvation, the cross, and God's sovereign purpose in that has invaded his consciousness. I wish I had looked at it more fully, but I've just bought a commentary on um, Revelation. I was given a book token. It's rather a big fat book and a big fat price. But the book token covered it, hallelujah. But I was just looking at the word overcomer briefly, I just try to get a feel of this uh, commentary. And he uses the word ironical. And I thought, am I misreading this word? He keeps on talking about the use, the, oh, the ironical use of the word overcomer. And I thought, is this a misspelling? Uh, is there another use of the word ironical that I don't understand? And, uh, I, and I'm, the more I just dipped into it, and I wish I'd looked longer, because I never thought of it in compar- with regard to what we're doing here. But what he was saying was this that the overcomer, the call to overcome, is not actually the call to be like a superman. You know, we tend to think of superman. Oh, here comes superman. Hallelujah. You know, he'll overcome. Uh, You know, here comes the cavalry. We will now overcome. And he's saying, no, no, overcoming, the call to overcome is modeled on the overcomer who stands as a lamb slain in the midst of the throne. And his overcoming, he said the word's ironical in that, at least I think this is what he's saying, in that our thought of overcoming is, you know, here comes the big punch. We'll sort this out. No, the real overcoming is, no, I stand true, steadfast. If this cup can't pass from me, this is the way I'm going. Right through, right through, right through, I overcome. Even if I cry out, my God, my God, why have you left me? He overcame, he overcame, he overcame, right through. And the invitation in the letters in the beginning of Revelation is an invitation to overcome in the sense that you do not deflect or depart from the call. And so it's sort of ironical in that we think overcome means, boom, here comes, you know, the Michael Owen goal at the end, or Superman, boom, you know, we won, we won. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) 
quick, quick. It's, uh, it's, it's, nah, I don't want to miss this, you know. I, that was a mistake, sorry. Okay. Shh, let me hold this. Let's hold the mirth. I'm making a serious point, all right? The call is, can we overcome in the difficulty? Do we keep going? That's, that's, the, that's the, the ironical aspect. It looks like defeat. And that's what, that's what I believe that's the sort of thing he's saying here. It's, he sees everything in the light of the bigger picture. Emblazoned on the screen at Calvary, there is nothing that doesn't fit. And so he says, no, I can see this positively. I'm overcoming by staying true. And I thought, God, that is so important that we understand that. So Paul, that's why he can still celebrate, though this may be so painful to think some people are preaching from the wrong motives. But that's not going to throw him off course because he's absolutely on focus himself. Second, and related to the first, Paul is a man of single passion. Christ and the gospel. Everything is to be seen and done in the light of Christ. For him, both life and death mean Christ. He is the passion of the single-minded person who has been apprehended by Christ, as he will tell us later in Philippians 3. Third, Paul's passion for Christ led him to an understanding of discipleship in which the disciple took up a cross to follow his Lord. Discipleship, therefore, meant to participate in the sufferings of Christ, to be ready to be poured out as a drink offering in, the, in ministry for the sake of others. His imprisonment belongs to those trials for which we were destined and thus come as no surprise. And so we've got to see here that Paul can handle this ugly thing of people preaching almost to make life tougher for him. And he can still celebrate. Gospel's being preached. Gospel's being preached. And the Mool's quote here, if even a separatist propaganda will extend the knowledge of him, his servant can rejoice. And there's a little slight re reflection, I think, back to Mark 9, 38, when it says the apostles said to Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't following us, so we stopped him. And Jesus says, no, no, that's a wrong perspective. And so we need to catch that broad, generous heart that says primarily the gospel is being preached. There's obviously other things you can say about this. It's not an easy thing to applaud envy, rivalry. But Paul, in the context, that's his stance. And so we've got to learn from this great man of God. And we'll be in situations when we feel that. And uh, we just need to find God's grace to be winners. And, uh, you know, people open up down the street, you wonder what they're doing and all the rest of it. We say, God, give me a big heart. Help us, help us. As people are taking off and different groups are starting and networks and teams and streams and they come to town, God help us. We're not the only people in the world going out. And also to realize the challenge we're giving other people. Because when we in England, for instance, shout out a thousand churches, that isn't always good news for everybody else. Because they're saying, what? You know, you're a pain already, as you are. <laughs> so we've got to realize we can give other people problems. And so we need grace in that as well. All right, so the gospel advances outside of prison. That's his preoccupation. Uh, first of all, we saw some took courage. Others were preaching, trying to make it harder for Paul. But they found it difficult to make it harder for Paul. 
because his big view made him a winner. Next, the future. So we've seen the present. Uh, a was looking at the present, his present situation in prison and the outworking of it. And now secondly, the future for the glory of Christ and the good of the Philippians. Again, those are his motivations. Although it's about I, me in prison, his motivations are about Christ and the good of the church. His focus is on Christ. His orientation is eschatological. I said yesterday we can't escape that theme and we'll come back to it. So Paul's ambition primarily is that Christ be glorified. And uh, he prays and anticipates his deliverance. Now, it's just a, an interesting thing here that when he uh, is saying your prayers and so on will work out for my deliverance, um, Gordon Fee, and also it's in the, uh, the other commentary I referred to yesterday, the word commentary, says that the phrase is verbatim, borrowed from Job 13:16 in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. Um, it carries the idea for Job of his being vindicated. Uh, you remember Job was kind of uh, uh, incarcerated in his circumstances. He was imprisoned by dreadful circumstances and his uh, so-called comforters were making it even tougher for him. And he talked about the day he would be vindicated. And, uh, and this quote apparently is exactly the phrase that's taken from there. So two or three of the commentators say that probably Paul's thinking was not just to get out of prison, because he could die even, but he expected to live, but that he would absolutely be vindicated before God, because there's a certain shame in terms of being in chains, being in prison. But he's looking for a vindication that will glorify God. And uh, also that's overlapping with his actual release from prison, but there's ultimately a vindication that's primary in his thoughts, even actually if he's to die. He's looking for a vindication. And his dependence was on their prayers. Their prayers led to the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Um, Matthias says supply has a plus element in it. It's a kind of overflowing supply of the Spirit. And uh, the NIV has the help given by the Spirit. Uh, if you read Gordon Fee, that's one of his most annoyed sections with the NIV. He really gets angry with the NIV because he feels, he feels the NIV has missed the point of this overflowing supply of the Spirit and have uh, translated it help when he feels it's missed the point, really. So Paul intends the Spirit as the supply is confirmed by the almost identical usage in Galatians 3.5 where it can only mean God supplies you with the Spirit. He's not thinking of the Spirit's help but of the gift of the Spirit himself. The, the lavish outpouring of the Spirit. The result of your praying will be that I get lavish supplies of the Spirit. And Matthias says similar, the two thoughts of intercession and supply are bound so closely together by Paul that we could without violence translate the Greek, your prayers and the consequent supply of the Spirit. And uh, again, Fee says the grammar assumes the closest kind of relationship between their prayer and the supply of the Spirit. Now, I think it's important to see here, we saw yesterday how Paul prays for the churches. 
He says, I pray for you day and night. I'm praying for you. These are the things I pray. But also, they're in partnership, as I said at the beginning. And so he's saying to them, I depend on your prayers. And uh, it's something I want to encourage you to take seriously. Uh, I, I was so helped by some friends of uh, Ray and Sue Lowe's from Missoula, Montana, who uh, Steve Valentine and his lovely wife Kay, they uh, came over to us and said how they have, make sure they get people praying for them. And uh, they asked me, you know, do I have people praying? I said, well, I'm sure the church prays. They said, no, no, do they pray? Do they know all about what you're doing? Are they fully acquainted with your program? Are people praying for you all the time? And the more they impressed that on me, the more I thought, uh, no, I don't think so. And there's a lot of people coming and going at my home base. And uh, so I thought about that. So they said, are people systematically praying for you? And, uh, and when I began to say, um, actually, I think perhaps not. So they said, they said this, which kind of captured my attention. They said, so you walk naked throughout the world, do you? Which kind of caught my attention a bit. And uh, so, they, I mean, they were so so um, determined to cap my attention on this. And I, I have changed. I mean, I, I got people, I asked people if they would give themselves to pray. I started publishing a detailed program of where I go and dates and what I'm looking for. You know, so the people, I know others of you are doing this now. And I just, I don't know that necessarily all of you would have thought that through yet. But I just want to encourage you. Paul says, your prayers and the supply of the Spirit. Right, so he's, he is expecting this church's prayers to affect him. And uh, as I say, Matthias says that you could translate the text, your prayers and the consequent supply. And you know, sometimes we're very, very committed, aren't we? Sometimes uh, traveling guys, as we nearly all are in this room, uh, you're out there. And sometimes, you know, you're driving with Edward to the meetings at Meru, and he said, oh, by the way, television cameras will be here, and it'll be half hour here, half hour there, and then here we go, here we go, you know. And whether it's uh, Meru or whether it's Guadalajara or something, you find yourself into a program, and you think, here we go. <laughs> and there's hardly time to breathe. And you're so grateful that back there, there's some people crying to God, crying, oh, uphold them, Lord, be with them. And I just want to encourage you, make sure that you've got people who are praying, praying, praying. And sometimes, you know, you feel you're flying in preaching. You feel God's with you. And you think, boy, we hardly had time this morning to pray. And, you know, you're fighting jet lag and all that kind of thing. And you're conscious you're being carried by other people's prayers. And it's important, dear friends, you've got to encourage people in praying, communicate back to them, thank them, ask for more. I personally look for prayers at home. I haven't put it in the news sheet, is anyone interested? I've, I've actually written to people I know pray a lot. <laughs> and people, I hear them pray in the prayer meeting, I think, hmm, I'd like him praying for me. So I, I've written, I said, would you please? And usually, I, so I'm looking for praying people. And uh, I thank God for the Valentines who really brought that home to me. And uh, I think when, well, I won't get into that detail. It's important for us uh, to do that. Hallelujah. And his expectation as a result of this, and time forbids that we enlarge every phrase when we're trying to go through this epistle. He says, these are the things I'm looking for. My hope, expectation. I shall not be put to shame in anything. And uh, that context of being put to shame is probably rooted back in the Hebrew mindset that 
the man of God is not put to shame. Uh, you'll find that kind of phrase is often put in the Psalms, in the mouth of David. Lord, you're going to give your servant success. Don't let me be put to shame. I'm going to win through. I'm going to be vindicated. And uh, the man who doesn't trust in the Lord is often put to shame. You'll find that sort of reference in the Psalms. I'll just, if I can, uh, turn to Psalm 34. I'll just read this Psalm 34. And uh, he says, I magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. He answered me, delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. And you get those words, exalt and ashamed together and in several places in the psalm. And there it is. He says, I don't want to be um, ashamed. I'm looking to exalt the Lord. Uh, so that's, that's his desire. That with all boldness and plainness of speech, again, that's a recurring phrase of Paul's. Uh, if you're jotting down text 2 Corinthians 3.12, you'll find a similar reference. Paul's looking for boldness of speech. And uh, that's his desire, that he'll have opportunity to speak. And it's interesting to notice that even in his imprisonment in Caesarea, before the boat trip to Rome, he had opportunity uh, to speak to Agrippa. He had opportunity to speak to Festus, to Felix. I mean, he sp stood before kings. And he had boldness to speak. And you remember what he said, you know, oh, King Agrippa. And the guy says, hey, hold off a minute. He's, he's in chains, but he's the bold one. You think, who's in charge around here? Because he's so bold. Though he was in chains, and uh, uh, he's, you know, remember, wasn't King Agrippa said, "You try to make me a Christian." He said, "I wish you were like me, apart from these chains." And there's such boldness, such clarity, and he said, "I want boldness of speech now here in Rome as well." Now, as always, again a, a phrase that Paul uses elsewhere, and that he's saying this time in my body. I mean, that is a physical, uh, in his physical body, whether it's by life or death. He's looking for God to be glorified. It's, uh, he's really looking for God's purpose to be fulfilled. His whole desire is that Christ may be magnified. That's, that's the motivation of his heart. Obviously, as I say, we could spend time on so many phrases, but we, I think, must press on. So these are things in his mind. These are his desires while in prison. That he's saying, but <laughs> the desired outcome to be with Christ. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Such a famous Bible verse, uh, but so challenging actually. And I've thought a lot about this in the last few weeks preparing for today. For me to live is Christ. I remember the shock I had some years ago when I was asked to speak at Spring Harvest and do the Bible readings. And uh, they told me what I was to speak about. And they they said, I want you to speak about Jesus Christ from here and here and here. And I remember thinking, and it shocked me, I thought, blow, I want to speak about the church. And I heard myself think it. And I felt the shock in my soul. And it really hit me. I knew I felt that. I thought, no, I don't want to talk about Jesus, I want to talk about the church. And it scared the life out of me as I heard myself think it. And it really was a shock. And I felt God arrest me then. And I think I've, I've tried to always remember that shock that I had. And I just want us to say, let's be careful, dear friends, 
God has given us a commission, even to change the expression of Christianity. And there will be emphases that we live with sometimes about the church, about the kingdom, about the grace of God. You know, there are certain values that we are identified with, things that burn in our hearts. And I just feel, oh, careful, watch out, you may fall in the same trap I did. That when someone said, would you speak to us about Jesus for four mornings, I thought, blow it. I thought, oh my God, what have I just said? What have I just thought? And it made me realize, boy, you be careful. Because Paul never got there. Paul never drifted there. Uh, and, and for him to live is Christ. Everything, Christ is focal. Christ is central. Christ is the heart. For me to live is Christ. It's an amazing phrase. It's what preoccupies. It's his devotion. It's his daily life. It's his relationship. It's his mental preoccupation. It's his heart desire. It's his will. Christ is the center. And we just need to say, Lord, help. Help, lest we drift away from that. Uh, that it must be our, as I've said here, Paul's magnificent obsession is Christ. He longs to know him. And let's be, let's be careful in our, our own prayer and devotions. You know, we carry many burdens, dear brothers and sisters. You can have many issues that trouble you. Many things you want to pray about. But I want to say to you, don't you dare rush into intercession. You spend time with Jesus. You, you, people, I was asked to speak on the long haul. You get this kind of request, you get to my age at our fist, fist program at home. And I was asked to speak. They gave me the subject, the long haul. You think, oh, is it long haul? All right, I've been around a while. Okay. <laughs> okay. And there were good questions from these magnificent young guys we've got in our ranks. And, I, and one of the things I said, I said, if, if I have been going a long time, one of my secrets I would feel is this. I spend a lot of time worshipping. And I don't just mean in meetings. I'm a worshipper of Jesus. And I spend a lot of time worshipping Jesus. And so my devotional time isn't just praying about the churches. Although God helping us, we do that with all our hearts. But I want to encourage you, love the Lord. Give your time to Him. Delight yourself in Him. I saw a quote of, of Cho's, which I wrote in the back of my Bible a while back. It really arrested my attention. And uh, I hope I can find it. Yeah, Cho says this, these days, it seems, he is drawing me more away from activity. He wants to spend more time alone with me. I know that if I satisfy his desire, he will allow me to have enough time to meet the duties that fall on me as the pastor of the world's largest church. Ministry to the Lord is before ministry to his people. I felt God told me that when I was uh, years ago working on a door-to-door Coldine estate at the back of Brighton. I felt God said to me when I was slaving, feeling condemned, I wasn't very good at it. I felt God said to me, my first calling on your life is to be a worshipper. Everything else is an added bonus. Everything else is an added bonus. You are primarily called to be a worshipper. God is seeking worshippers. So I want to encourage you to just make sure that you say, for me to live is Christ. And that we're just going to love him, worship him, enjoy him, celebrate him, get to know more about him, enjoy his companionship. One day in your courts is better than living my whole life 
somewhere else. That is not poetry. That's a real equation. One day in your courts. One day of a manifestation of his glory. We need to be thirsty for Jesus. To me, to live is Christ, Paul says. Everything else is secondary. And that helps him handle prison or whatever. And we'll see later in the epistle, I've learned to be content with this and that. He's found the secret. And I'm sure it's a lot to do with this. For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. So you can't say the second part of the verse unless you're enjoying the first part. To live is Christ. To die is gain. If, if to live is not Christ, to die is never going to be seen as gain. Because to die is to get right through to him. And so we do want to make Jesus absolutely central to our lives, the focal point of our existence. For me, to live is Christ. He is the center of everything. And so Christ is the name that sums up for Paul the whole range of his new relationship to God. Personal devotion, commitment, service, the gospel, ministry, communion, inspiration, everything for me to live is Christ. And I love, uh, like Colin, Hudson Taylor is one of my my great heroes. And I'm amazed. He wrote a commentary on the Song of Solomon. You think, how did that guy find time to write a commentary on the Song of Solomon? But you read his letters and the feel of his life. That man was not only an incredible missionary pioneer, he was a lover of Jesus. Remarkable uh, devotional spirit. If ever you touch that man, Uh, Hudson Taylor, for him, I'm sure he could say, for me to live is Christ. And so again, likewise, if Paul is executed, that means the goal of living has thus been reached. He will have gained Christ. And let's just be careful this, because you can look around the commentaries. This is not a death wish. This isn't a desire to have done with life. And uh, he can speak positively about gain through death because of his absolute devotion to Christ in life. And uh, we, we, you, I've put here, contrast the tragic, empty hopes of the suicide pilots on September the 11th. I mean, when you read of their expectation of laying down their life, it is so weird and ugly and sensual. And they expect a great reward. But, I mean, it is unspeakable. Uh, and it's captivated them absolutely captivated them and the power of a life laid down is on demonstration there you would never have dreamed of course and people used to say well you know if if you are on board and your case is on board of course there won't be a bomb in the case because you're on the plane and so they won't take a case without a person and now we find they don't care if their lives go but they're not risking their lives they're throwing down their lives but for pathetic reasons gross sensual reasons and, and the vain promise. But for Paul, he's thrown clarity here. For me to die is gain. It's authentic. It's real. It's to be with Christ. And uh, so for him, he says, to die is gain, yes. Although living means fruitful labor for me. And he's, as it were, in a kind of dilemma. He's uh, thinking through the two things. I- I'm fascinated by his clear statement if I live, that means fruitful service. And I remember that hitting me some years ago. I thought, no, Paul expects, if I'm alive, I'm going to bear fruit. And I thought, yes, Lord, I want that attitude. 
My expectation is fruit. We're not just going to have a go, wonder if God will help. Paul says, if I live, that means fruitful service. Hallelujah, we're living. So let's expect fruit. That's our anticipation. And, uh, and sometimes you can get into a context where there is such a, a majoring on our weakness. I've been in one or two contexts lately where you meet with this preoccupation with human weakness and how, what failures we are. And, and if only, and maybe, God might help, although I'm such a weak vessel, perhaps he may not feel he can. But that's not the atmosphere of the New Testament. The atmosphere of the New Testament is, if I live, that means fruit. And I believe it's important for us to get into that. Oh, not, I wonder if God will be with me. No, no, God's with me. There's going to be fruit. And so he is assured of that. Are you, are you assured of that? It's important, dear friends. We, we make our trips, don't we? You know, you get on that plane or you drive off and you visit that church or you visit that group. If I come, I'm going to have some fruit among you. We need to get that in our guts. I'm going to have fruit here because I've come and God's with me. I'm alive in God. So that means fruit. That's our expectation. We don't expect duff times. Amen? <laughs> we don't expect just to go through the motions. That is not what Paul was like. If I live, it's fruit. If I'm coming, expect fruit. And sometimes we've been raised on that kind of humility deal. This is, oh, I don't know if God could ever use me. And I don't believe that's the atmosphere that Paul would want us to live in. Uh, and it's not arrogant. Arrog uh, it's, you don't feel this is arrogant. This is Paul's expectation. If I come, we'll have some fruit. Hallelujah. I believe God wants that in us, to be believing he says, if I had a choice, uh, verse 23, he's, he seems somewhat caught on the horns of a dilemma, whether to live or die, and uh, whether it's uh, a desire to depart, he says, which is very much better. And um, Fee says, and I haven't got all the detail of it, but he says the way Paul expresses that is a remarkable compound of superlatives, and it's little question where Paul's sympathies lie. Paul says his words come tumbling out. That's what uh, Gordon Fee says. It's like, if I've got the choice to be with Christ, well, it's so much better. He says it's bad grammar. Words are tumbling out. He's so enthusiastic. If I had the choice, whoa, let's go. I want to be with Jesus. And uh, that's, that's where he is. But it's, it's not to be compared, as I've said here, with Hamlet's soliloquy, you know, to be or not to be. And, uh, uh, you know, and some commentators say this kind of thing. That he hit a depressed time. Uh, you know, did he have a suicide wish? You think, what is he talking about? And uh, again, I don't know quite why the printings come out like this, but it goes straight on. And uh, Fee says here, although apparently reflecting on life or death in the abstract, in reality, he is pondering what it would mean for him to either be released or executed. And he says, eschatological yearning, that is, I long to be with him, should not be interpreted as an existential dilemma. <laughs> it's not like, shall I live or die? And really, it's such a hard life. Perhaps this will be the way out. And certainly, I've looked around the commentaries, and some suggest that. You know, Paul, Paul hit a moment when he didn't know whether he wanted to live or not. And he said, and Thee says, it's not what it's about at all. And if you look at the whole text, it's very clear. He says, I expect to be with you, actually. But he did, he did say, listen, <laughs> you know, if the choice was straight, I'm happy to go to Jesus. I'm happy to go. 
Uh, he had a yearning to gain the prize, as we shall see in chapter 3. But he was happy to remain for their sake. So these two motivations are uppermost. The glory of Christ, whether I'm imprisoned or not, and the good of the Philippian church. His own uh, condition was very secondary. These were the two uppermost motivations. He wanted to see Christ glorified. He wanted to serve the church. Those were the driving forces in his life. And so he says, uh, verse 25, Paul's conviction is that he would remain. And uh, he's happy to be there for their sake. It makes it clear that the previous passage doesn't represent Paul having a deep inward struggle. He's looking forward to being with them for the pro their progress and joy. And then he says in, in, a, uh, in verse 26, your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus. Uh, literally, your grounds for glorying will overflow in Christ Jesus in me. Now Vincent says this, the conjunction of the two phrases, in Christ in me, is somewhat confusing. Paul's presence is the immediate cause of their Christian joy, hence in me. But their rejoicing in Paul is in Christ, the joy evolved in the sphere of life in Christ. I, I looked up the verses, I just looked uh, at other verses that use this kind of phrase, and uh, I was quite struck by it, because it's, it's, a, it's a strange expression, your proud confidence in me. It's not something we often think about. In fact, it's something we tend to want to walk away from. And uh, so it kind of sticks out. Church is being proud of their apostle. And uh, do we want to live with that? Is that a happy note? And I'm not sure if Vincent is helping us or not with his explanation in terms of uh, other uh, verses. Uh, for instance, I've, I've just written down a number of verses you might like to look up. I'm not sure I've got all the answers to this, but I think it's provocative and it, it, we need to think it through a bit. 2 Corinthians 5.12 I'll read it to you from uh, here. We're not commending ourselves to you but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us that you may have an answer for those who take a pride in appearance. I think the NIV says opportunity to take pride in us. Paul seems comfortable with that that they should be proud of him as their apostle. Now, you know, I leave that with you to ponder. It's not a verse that I would have given much attention to before. I find that, that area dangerous, scary. And uh, I think, how do you live with that? And we've got to know, what does Paul mean? What is he after? 2 Corinthians 7.4, he talks about his boasting in them and then uh, theirs in him. 2 Corinthians 7.4, great is my confidence in you, great is my boasting on your behalf. So Paul boasts in the church. He boasts about the Corinthians. And, he, and he, he says, this is a great church of mine. And he boasts about them. And uh, then you'll find 2 Corinthians 1, 14. Uh, you'll find that he says, uh, just as also uh, partially, uh, well, I want to see that, that we are your reason to be proud as you are also ours, where? In the day of the Lord Jesus. You know, in the presence of God. So he's not scared to talk about this. 
Because he's talking about it in the light of the appearing of Christ. That he can have pride in the church. And the church can have pride in their apostle. And so it's not some small thing. And I'm not sure that Vincent is getting the point. And I think that we've got to learn how to handle people's pride in their apostle. And I'm not sure I know where to take that. I'll leave it for you. I'll do, like, I'll do a Colin Barron on you. You know, I'll just leave it with you. And uh, I, 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 feel, I feel there's more here than I'm comfortable with. But I feel I want to see where it takes us in terms of, we maybe could open up in, no, we can't now, but uh, in the cell or whatever. What is appropriate here? And I do, I've often preached before about my disquiet with anonymity. You know, the faceless army. People talk about God's looking for a faceless army. I've heard Paul Cain say it. I've got great respect for Paul Cain. No, he's a great man. I've heard him and others say, God, what's a faceless army? And it sounds so beautiful. It sounds so lacking in personality cult, which is appropriate. But the Bible says we are proud. I want you to be proud of your apostle. Now, I've never preached, I've never even said things like this before. But I've just stumbled on this verse. And I, and I look cross-references and I see, hey, there's lots of them. So Paul was happy with this. So what I, I feel I want to at least say is this. Let's not take up this thing about no personalities, no characters, no people. Now, Paul, who could say for me to live as Christ, says, I'm proud of you, you can be proud of me. It's amazing. It's amazing. And um, I think God gave David a name that he was proud of. And I, I just feel, God, help me to be biblical. Help me to work out what it means. Help me not to move into anything arrogant. But let's not miss what the Bible says. And uh, Paul says, I want you to have... You see, they were in danger, actually, of being over-impressed at Corinth by showy, flashy apostles. And that's the context in which he challenges that. And that, but he doesn't then tell them about his great abilities. He tells them about his sufferings, which is a bit scary. I'm not sure we're going to go down this road. <laughs> so he says, well, you might be proud of me. And I think it may be that if we are so anonymous, we leave the saints vulnerable to be impressed by flashy apostles. And it may well be that's one of the reasons Paul was unashamed to let his personality come through so they could be honestly proud of him because he was their apostle, as he was proud of them, as his church. And so it's a set, there may be a safeguard there, whereas we might feel the safeguard is to be anonymous. But Paul says the safeguard... Okay. The safeguard is that they should be genuinely proud of the authentic apostle. And uh, so I, I feel, sitting here I'm talking about it, my thoughts, I don't know where I was going to take this, but I, I really feel it's something God poked through at me in these last verses. And uh, I just feel we need to be willing to receive it and learn how to live this. God does not want an impersonal, anonymous army. Numbered, unknown, hidden. Now, if God wants to put Paul in prison for a couple of years and forget he's there, well, it's what it seems like. We're not looking for uh, a position, but we're not scared of people loving and being proud of one another. 
And learning to handle that well and wisely is quite a challenge. I'll finish with. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. God, we, we sometimes feel so shallow in ourselves. We're such novices. We're such really weak people. And we, we, we see this mighty, mighty man who thought through so many things. And yet we thank you. He could say, Christ is everything to me. And we'll go on to see how he would, uh, he says, everything else is trash. But I might gain him. And uh, Lord, we, we pray for one another. I pray for my dear friends here this morning. Lord, you know, we, we fight for certain doctrines. We're, we're happy to be identified with them. We love the church. We want the church glorious. And Lord, we've got a passion for your church. We've got a passion to see the kingdom come. We've got a passion for the grace of God. Lord, many things captivate us. And we just bring to you the practical realization that it's possible for us to drift away from a simple, obsessive statement, for me to live is Christ. And Father, I ask you, help us. Safeguard us. Help us as a, a company of a people that you've gathered in your name. God, safeguard us. May Jesus be our passion. Always, always our passion. What we can honestly say, for me to live is Christ. And God, we, we want that. And we want you to give us grace too, when other people may have bad attitudes to us. Uh, and Lord, teach us to have that magnanimous spirit that wins the day. Lord Jesus, give us grace in that. And help us, Lord, not to uh, be self-centered in, uh, Lord, our attitudes. I know I'm so guilty of that. And I do ask you, God, help us to think always of the advance of the gospel as primary. And uh, Lord, we pray, oh, give us this guy's mental attitudes and his longings. And Father, just keep blessing us with your truth together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This concludes the second part of this six-part series. For more information on New Frontiers resources, visit the website on www.newfrontiers.xtn.org.